This is VLX number 87, Heaven and Hell. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 43. God give you his peace in omni patris affiliate spiritus sancti amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In omni patris affiliate spiritus sancti amen. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So if you remember, we already studied this parable in VLX number 85. I called that the weed and the mustard seed. And we did look at this parable of weeds already. This is Matthew 13, 24 to 30 originally. But remember, we just looked at the church fathers. Today, we're actually going to see Christ's explanation in verses 36 to 43. And, you know, I just read you the ESV a minute ago, but I like the Dewey rhymes for verse 41 today. That's Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all scandals and them that work iniquity. Now remember the Douay Rhymes Bible, that's based more word for word on the Latin, because that was written by, or was translated by Jerome in the fourth century. He went from the Greek to the Latin, and then I think it was a couple hundred years ago, the Douay Rhymes went from the Latin to the English. So it's a little bit antiquated, and it's more from the Latin than the Greek. Um, but it is word for word. So even though there's a problem that we can sometimes lose the, uh, the sense of the whole sentence or get ant antiquated transliteration, we are looking word for word, and now we're talking about the end of time. These words about how the angels will gather out of his kingdom, that's Christ's kingdom, gather out of his kingdom all scandals at the end of time. Now, that's extremely important because, you know, we believe as Catholics that the kingdom isn't just the gospel, but also the church. And there's literally that Greek word in there, skandala. Skandala is actually in the Greek there. Almost the exact same word as we found in the Dewey Rhymes Bible. As you may have noticed by now, the Greek often ends its plural nouns in an A, unlike in English and Romance languages often ends in an S. But I really think this is a comforting thought uh, that we know that the kingdom is the church and Christ is telling us that at the end of time, God's angels shall gather out of his church all scandals. How awesome is that? All the scandals would be eradicated out of his church. Now, notice that the Greek, uh, for the second group of people who will be weeded out of the kingdom at the end of time, in Greek, it's literally the doers of lawlessness. I want to look at that word lawlessness because it's actually pretty important. Uh, the word for law in Greek is nomos. Nomos is law in Greek. Now, how do we create the privation of a noun? I want to talk about a really cool connection between Greek and English. It's called the alpha privative. Notice the accent is on the first syllable like the word primitive, but the word is privative. So 
The alpha privative is when either, either, get this, either in Greek or in English, you put an A at the front of the word to make it the opposite of the word. So in English, for example, the word agnostic is a person who doesn't know if God exists. That's because cognition means knowledge, also from the Greek or word gnosis. So agnosis means you don't know. Very sad existence, by the way, if there's any kids listening and wonder about how that goes in life. Or the word atheist. Theist is one who believes in God. Put an A in front of that word and you have someone who is without belief in God. Or last example I'll give you in English, amoral. That doesn't mean so much immoral as, this is the definition I found online, amoral is not admitting of moral distinctions or judgments. So the cool thing is, Greek also has this alpha privative. A few words we can look at. Dolos is deceit in Greek. Dolos is deceit. A person without duplicity is adolos in Greek. Dunatos in Greek is powerful. It's actually the root of our English word dynamite. Dunatos in Greek is powerful, but adunatos is powerless. See how that works? An A in front of the word makes it the alpha privative, meaning a letter in English or Greek, makes that noun deprived of what it normally is. And one more example, I love this one. Thanatos in Greek is death. Put an A in front of that, athanatos, and you have immortal, one without death. So again, if nomos is law, then all workers of lawlessness, or anomian, as it's conjugated in verse 41 today, these are booted from Christ's kingdom by the angels, as we heard in Matthew 13. Now that's an important word for those of you who are interested in end time study, end times Bible study, because St. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians about the end of time, what we're going to see on earth right before Christ returns in glory, he writes in 2 Thessalonians, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So right there, it's important to notice that's the same word as we had in verse 41 in Matthew's gospel today, just a different conjugation of the noun for verse 3 in St. Paul. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 that we just heard had this prophecy from St. Paul of the man of lawlessness. In Greek, hoanthropos tes anomias. As you might remember, anthropos is man. And of course, anomias is lawlessness. As we just saw the alpha privative in Matthew 13 today for the exact same word. So combine the gospel in St. Paul, and this means that before Christ returns in glory at the final judgment here on earth, we will experience the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I personally think this person is alive right now. And I think, you know, notice only lawless people would miss a man of lawlessness. Most societies right now live in lawlessness. So again, anomias means without the law. And this refers to a man deprived of the law. Which law? The law of God. Okay, now, if you remember what we did in VLX 85, the weed and the mustard seed, I said that the field where all these seeds and weeds were, I said that field sown was the church. Well, I was wrong because as I look closer at Christ's words, I see a major correction in what he said. This is why it's so beautiful we have Christ's words today. 
Because what he shows us today is the field is the world, not the church. A little corrective on what I had said earlier. The field is the word is the world, not the church. Why is this important? Well, the church fathers believed it was the duty of the church hierarchy to root out heretics and eject them from the church. <laughs> but as you can see, that's not going to happen today in the 21st century. So you can cut me some slack for thinking in VLX 85, we were talking uh, about the church where only at the end of time the bad people will get kicked out. But, you know, this is what Father Lapide says on this very topic, taking this from the church fathers. He says, the innovators... That means people who have new theology. And I think when he wrote this in the year 1600, he probably meant Protestants. He says, The innovators infer that heretics are not to be punished and extirpated. For by the same reasoning, they might conclude that murderers and thieves must not be punished. For they too are cockle, or weeds. That's what cockle means in the old translation here. And I say, for this is Father Lapide, that Christ does not here absolutely forbid these cockle to be plucked up but says that no one must attempt to root them all up together, nor at a time when they cannot be distinguished from the wheat, and when there is danger of pulling up the wheat at the same time with them, as Christ himself explains in verse 29. But all this does not apply when anyone is a manifest heretic, especially if he teaches and infects others with his heresy. For such a one does more harm to the church than a murderer, for the one only kills the body, but the other the soul." So what the church fathers are saying through Father Lapida here is that the church hierarchy should root out manifest heretics. Okay, so let's talk about why I titled this Heaven and Hell. I named this VLX Heaven and Hell because the whole point of the gospel is to save us from hell, to get us to heaven. So let's see what the church fathers have to give us for this study method and a little bit later what St. Ignatius for imagining the afterlife. Now towards the end of today's section, we have these lines that our Lord himself describes the end of time. We should really pay attention when Jesus Christ himself gives us a clue what's going to happen at the end of all time. He says, first this line, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Now just a quick note on the Greek there. Uh, the end of the age right there in Matthew 13.40 in Greek is te suntelea to ionos. And the word ionos is the root word of our English eon, which is defined in an English dictionary online as a long space of time, a secular period, either indefinite or limited to the duration of something as a dispensation of the universe, used as an equivalent to age, era, or cycle, and sometimes to eternity. So anyway, I just thought that was a cool connection, literally, that at the consummation of the eons, the consummation of the eons, we will either go to the kingdom of our Father or a fiery furnace. That's literally the Greek right there, the furnace of fire. There's no third option. Not even purgatory will exist at the final judgment anymore. And then we have this line from Jesus himself today, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, as we heard earlier, scandala in Greek, and all lawbreakers, that's where we get the word anomia, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Father Lapide quotes Pope St. Gregory the Great on this, and he says, The angel reapers bind the terrors in bundles for burning when they join like with like in similar torments. For instance, the proud with the proud, the luxurious with the luxurious, the miserly with misers, liars with liars, the envious with the envious, unbelievers with unbelievers, that they may burn together. Notice we really had those words, bundles to burn. They're all kind of put together. This kind of reminds me what um, G.K. Chesterton, I think it was Chesterton or Belloc, talk about how all the 
you know, communist dictators, all the really bad tyrannical people all over the globe for the past few hundred years, they're all kind of the same. They all have the same personality, where the saints have very, very different personalities. Let's see verse 42 here, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. The furnace, says Father Lapide, denotes that the damned, a great number, shall be confined in hell as in a furnace, as wood and straw are confined in a furnace. Second, that they will be engulfed with fire and tossed about like smoke and sparks in the hearth or a furnace. Hence, Isaiah in chapter 33, verse 14 says, Which of you can dwell with devouring fire? Which of you shall dwell with everlasting burnings? What we have to hear in here is just hell is absolutely unbearable. Don't go there. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remigius says that by this signified the twofold pain of hell, namely excessive heat and excessive cold. See commentary at Matthew 8.12. How unequal and troublesome this exchange. For the impious will exchange the kingdom of heaven for the fire of hell. Then we have verse 43. Things get better here. Better news for the saved. It says, Then shall the just shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Father Lapide says this is an allusion to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. But they that are learned, Hebrew, masculine, means the wise and the prudent, the masculine in Hebrew, namely, those who shall live prudently and wisely shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that shall instruct many to justice as the stars for all eternity. This is one reason why we do this study. It's, again, as I say all the time, it's not good enough to have warm emotions. This is the wise and the prudent who will inherit this kingdom of our Father. Okay, let's talk about the imaginative way a little bit here. Let's talk about heaven first. You know, first I want to give you a meditation I wrote in seminary of me somehow being saved, and then right after my particular judgment, a saint escorts me to Mary, who then escorts me to Jesus. Now, I realize this a little bit backwards because Jesus will judge me before I either see the flames of hell or the beatific vision. Pray for me that it be the latter. So forgive me, but I've learned a lot since seminary, so I know the chronology's off a little bit. Imagine at death your two favorite saints escorting you to the unapproachable light of God's eternal bliss and glory. One saint puts his arm to your upper arm, and then a minute later the other puts her arm through your arm. They flank you to escort you to the heart of heaven. Their walk turns to a run, barely letting your eyes adjust to the weight of eternal glory, but they brought you to Mary, mirror of all his glory. The escort slows and stops. Mary takes you alone to meet her son. So that was just my little meditation on heaven, what it could look like. And I do realize Jesus will be the first person we see to judge us. Um, but just the uh, kind of the uh, dialing up of glory that, that maybe we will see at that uh, if we do make it to heaven. And if you think that's too sappy, I don't hesitate to share that for two reasons. One, because great saints like St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila, they really believe God can work through our imagination. You know, we traditional Catholics, and I include myself in this, we often shy away from the imagination because it's so corrupted by the world. Uh, or we think we have to have this Romanitas of Stoicism. But that this is why uh, I, I don't hesitate to point out to you, this is the prayer of the Jesuits and the Carmelites, but also the Franciscans, to use our imagination um, and this goes back to the 16th century, so nobody can say this is just like sappy modernism. And this was the way they meditated, at least in the cataphatic way. Now, the second reason I don't hes hesitate to share those things like you is because uh, if you think it's too easy to meditate on heaven, just hold on because I have a full meditation on hell from St. Ignatius 
which is going to be towards the end of this podcast. I'll explain before we get there why I think parents should have their kids meditate on hell, but you'll have plenty of time to turn off the podcast if you disagree with me before we get there. I want to say a few more words about heaven today since Christ gives us such a visual himself in these words today that we heard. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Just even that right there could fuel, say, 30 minutes of your mental prayer. Just picture picture 10 or 5 of your favorite saints already shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And that's spelled S-U-N by the way, but it's kind of one of those cool parts of English is that anytime we hear the word son, S-U-N, it is in some way analogous to God the Son. So there's kind of that double meaning that we only have in English there, that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But here's why I think we modern Catholics, including myself, really don't understand heaven. I mean, eye has not seen, ears not heard, none of us do on earth, right? But I think we have a hard time really even meditating as we should meditate with just these kind of glimmers of heaven already. Because I think that, well, first, we make the mistake of thinking, well, I like everyone and God likes them more. Therefore, everyone must be saved because even the most wicked people, Hitler and Stalin, well, not even I in my worst day would want them to burn in a fiery furnace forever. Okay, but what we're first missing in all of this in our own appraisal is we forget how holy God is. That ultimately, after this period of trial on earth, there's only two options. Either one, we're saturated in the holiness of God in heaven, or two, we are separated from him forever in punishment. There's no gray zone. So if we're not totally ready at the end of our, end of our lives to enter the holiness of God, guess what? There's only one other option. And I also think personally we make this mistake of thinking so many people are going to heaven uh, because we don't realize how supremely holy heaven will be. You know, many Christians today, they just think of heaven as less real. Kind of like this, I don't know, steamy jacuzzi where we're all drugged up and numb like on narcotics where there's just kind of, oh, just this dopey happiness and no more pain. <laughs> but heaven, my friends, heaven is going to be more real than earth. In fact, it's actually going to be more physical than earth The final, because the final judgment is going to restore not only the new heavens, but also the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Someone left a comment on, on YouTube about six months or a year ago against me on that, uh, saying that's not going to be the case. It's right in Isaiah and the book of the Apocalypse that not only are we going to have a new heavens, we're going to have a new earth. And this is based on the fact we get our bodies back. Whether you go to heaven or hell, you get your bodies back at the end of time. So there's going to be a physical reality to the afterlife. And so you got to realize heaven is supremely holy, but it's also supremely real. People think relationships won't continue in heaven because we're just going to be contemplating God. But I'll tell you, yeah, primarily you're going to be contemplating God, but everyone you love now, you will love 10,000 times more in heaven. Everyone you love on earth right now, if they are saved and you are saved, you will love 10,000 times more in heaven. Every relationship on heaven is going to be more real than here on earth, just without the physical side of marriage. And so you see the, the modernist idea that heaven is just this dopey, misty afterlife, as if, you know, as if that's all it is. Well, then probably everybody goes there, they would say, except Hitler and Stalin. And, oh, even they probably had some good emotions to God at the end at cardiac arrest. So they're probably saved, says the modernist heretic. But if we really, really understood how holy we have to be to enter heaven, remember the book of the Apocalypse says nothing unclean will enter heaven. Remember St. Paul writes to the Hebrews, he talks about this holiness without which no one will see God. 
think if we really meditated on how holy we have to be to contemplate the face of God for all of eternity, that's really the definition of heaven, to contemplate the face of God for all eternity and become like him, even more than what we are if we are in a state of grace, as it says in 1 John 3, go look at that, then we would realize few people, I'm really sorry to say this, are ready for that if they died right now. And even if we're given a chance of perfect contrition at death, like some of the mystics say, does that just you know, automatically change all of our habits and our passions and our desires? You think a thief or a liar or a trafficker automatically changes all of his habits to want holiness at death? You see, for a long time I thought that only a meditation on hell would get us over this modernist Catholic idea that just most Catholics go to heaven. Well, I do hold to meditating on hell can really help, but now I see that even a meditation on the pure joy and pure peace and this supersonic, unspeakable holiness of heaven will also make us realize that most people couldn't even live in that environment for two seconds with their current lives. I wish it weren't that way. I wish everyone were saved. And you know who wants everyone to be saved much more than me? Is God. That's why God the Son died on a cross as man, so we wouldn't have to go to hell. So he could pay the price. He did pay the price. Wash away our unholiness so we could enter heaven cleansed by his blood to be holy enough to contemplate the, the blessed trinity for all of eternity. But see, that's why we need grace to enter heaven. Even the best human life, the best morals, without grace cannot prepare us for what eye has not seen and ear has not heard that God has prepared for us in heaven. And we're going to look at St. Ignatius of Loyola in a minute, but remember, he teaches, as you jump into, let's say you do this uh, 10, 15 minutes, 30 minutes of imagining five or 10 of your favorite saints already shining with the light of the sun of their Father in heaven. Remember, as you enter into that type of prayer, that St. Ignatius of Loyola teaches tears is a consolation, that any increase in faith, hope, and charity is a consolation. But we don't necessarily need the emotions attached to that for it to be a consolation. In other words, any increase in faith, hope, and charity in your heart and mind, even if there's no great feelings or emotions, is the consolation that we want to be looking for in mental prayer. So look for increases in faith in your meditation on heaven. Even if you can't picture heaven, or even if you don't get excited about it, the ticket to heaven is faith, hope, and charity, not good feelings. So pray for an increase in those if you ask for graces in your mental prayer. So now let's talk about St. Ignatius of Loyola. You know, the masterpiece of meditation or mental prayer that was ever written was his 30-day long retreat where he has you do about four single-hour sessions every single day times about 30 days. He had thousands of men go through this in the 16th century. But one of the meditations he has during the first week, again, this is a four-week retreat of dozens and dozens of meditations, one of the things he has you meditate on in the first week is a very vivid and scary meditation on hell. Now, why would he have you do that at the beginning, the first week of four weeks, instead of, say, the fourth week out of four weeks? Well, I don't know, but I think it's because heaven and hell is what it's all about, and he wants to set the stage for everything you're going to be meditating on for the next 30 days. A little bit earlier, I mentioned kids. Should kids meditate on this? I'm going to give you a chance to turn this off, but I want to encourage you in the direction of yes. Parents, you make the decision. But, you know, um, St. Alphonsus Liguori talks about from a private revelation that he had read about that he believed that was approved by the church about a five-year-old, five-year-old kid who blasphemed God because he had already reached the age of reason, according to St. Alphonsus Liguori. 
and he died and he went to hell before he had a chance for confession. The uh, podcast called Return to Tradition read the whole sermon by St. Alphonsus Liguori on this. It's called something like Number of Sins. Yes, a five-year-old blasphemed God because he'd reached the age of reason and he didn't repent before death and he went to hell. Same with a 12-year-old in the same sermon by St. Alphonsus Liguori, Doctor of the Church. 12-year-old committed a different sin and he also went to hell. Uh, but you, you know who actually thought kids should meditate on hell? The Blessed Virgin Mary. When she showed the burning souls in hell at Fatima to those three little Portuguese kids, that is how we know kids should probably meditate on hell to understand not everybody goes to heaven and why we are on this earth is to obtain the grace to get to heaven. But feel free to turn off the podcast now if you don't want your kids to go through St. Ignatius of Loyola's meditation on hell that again, he puts at the beginning of his 30 days of mental prayer imaginative meditations to get his men to understand why every meditation and every decision in life is getting us ready for heaven or hell. And this is why it had to be in the first week of his four weeks. So even though he kind of writes in this dry Spanish way, that's actually for God to fit in the details in your own meditation, that's why I'm just going to read his dry meditation to you without additions to it here. But I encourage you to really meditate, as he says, not on another person's place in hell, but on your own place in hell. St. Ignatius of Loyola writes in the fifth exercise of the first week, This is a meditation on hell. Besides the preparatory prayer and two preludes, it contains five points and a colloquy. Prayer. The preparatory prayer will be as usual. First prelude. This is a representation of the place. Here it will be to see in imagination the length, breadth, and depth of hell. Second prelude. I should ask for what I desire. Here it will be to beg for a deep sense of the pain which the lost suffer, that if, because of my faults, I forget the love of the eternal Lord, at least the fear of these punishments will keep me from falling into sin. First point. This will be to see in imagination the vast fires and the souls enclosed, as it were, in the bodies of fire. Second point. To hear the wailing, the howling, cries, and blasphemies against Christ our Lord and against his saints. Third point, with the sense of smell to perceive the smoke, the sulfur, the filth, and corruption. Fourth point, to taste the bitterness of tears, sadness, and remorse of conscience. Fifth point, with the sense of touch to feel the flames which envelop and burn the souls. Colloquy or discussion, enter into conversation with Christ our Lord. Recall to memory that of those who are in hell, some came there because they did not believe in the coming of Christ, others, though they believed, because they did not keep the commandments. Divide them all into three classes. One, those who were lost before the coming of Christ. Two, those who were lost during his lifetime. Three, those who were lost after his life here on earth. Thereupon I will give thanks to God our Lord that he has not put an end to my life and permitted me to fall into any one of these three classes. I shall also thank him for this, that up to this very moment, when he has shown himself so loving and merciful to me, close with an Our Father. And please say, An Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris, Sifiri, et Spiritus Santi, descendit super vos et maniat semper. Amen.